I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Welcome to Vet Sessions. I'm Dr. Omar Khan, your host for today's podcast with Dr. Andrew Peregrine, Associate Professor in the Department of Pathobiology at the Ontario Veterinary College. Andrew joined my colleague, Dr. Tiffany Dozy last year to speak about Trichocomonas fetus as a possible cause for large bowel diarrhea in cats. Today, Dr. Peregrine is back to speak about hookworms. Before we jump into our topic, I'd like to thank our sponsors, OVC Pet Trust. This episode of Vet Sessions is generously sponsored by OVC Pet Trust. OVC Pet Trust, founded in 1986 at the Ontario Veterinary College, is Canada's first charitable fund dedicated to improving and advancing companion animal health and well-being. OVC Pet Trust supports innovative discoveries, education and healthcare that improve the prevention, diagnosis and treatment of diseases in pets. Learn more about OVC Pet Trust at www.petrust.ca or connect with them on Instagram at OVC Pet Trust. Welcome, Dr. Peregrine. Thanks for coming back and chatting with us again. You're welcome. Our listeners heard a bit of your veterinary journey on your last podcast with Tiffany. Any other fond stories that you'd like to share with us today? I mean, most of the entertaining stories concern parasites. Sure. And probably the funniest one was a vet who phoned me up a few years ago. So it all concerns the giant kidney worm, Dioctophyme, which we're lucky to have in parts of southern Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, the vet phoned me up because he said, I've just done a space surgery, but it went rather wrong. Right. So I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, we finished the surgery. We're just about to sew up the dog. And then I saw what I thought was a long loop of bright red small intestine. So uh, he said, I grabbed hold of what I thought was small intestine. And then what looked like a red snake reared its head out, out of the abdomen. Really? And I said, well, what happened at that point? And he said, well, everyone in the operating room screamed and ran out of the operating room. Right. So I said, so why are you phoning me up? And he said, well... We went back in and just sewed up the dog with the parasite in the abdomen. Oh. And so the question was, what do I do next? Yeah. So, I said, so I said, why didn't you remove it? And he said, it just was too gross. So really? we had a long conversation then about the necessity to go back in and remove the parasite and not killing it yeah. with an anthelmintic. Okay. So where exactly was it then? Where was it? It was lying free. This one large parasite that was about a meter in length and about a centimeter in diameter was lying free in the abdomen. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So where would that have migrated from? The, the kidney itself or the ureter? Or? Well, it, typically animals get infected by eating fresh frogs or fish. Mm-hmm. And then after they ingest the fish or frog that contains the immature stage of the parasite, typically burrows through the wall of the stomach or the small intestine, and then usually either into the liver or free in the abdomen. Mm. Quite often, they eventually end up in the right kidney, but often they don't. Oh, okay. Interesting. So the name's a bit of a misnomer. It's not always the giant kidney worm. It's usually the giant worm in the free in the abdomen. Ah, interesting. Like just two days ago, someone else phoned me up. They'd found 16 parasites uh, in the abdomen of this dog. 15 were wound around the right kidney, but not actually in the kidney. Interesting. Good to know. Well, thanks for that little bit of information (laughs) and entertainment. Um, Today we're here to talk about hookworms. 
Can you remind our listeners of the more common species and their life cycle, infectious, infectious cycles? So we're talking about dogs. Yes. Yeah. So historically, we always knew there were two hookworms that Canadian dogs were infected with. When I arrived, it's a few years ago now, I was told the predominant hookworm in Canadian dogs was Uncinaria stenocephala, mm-hmm. uh, and the less common but more pathogenic hookworm was Ankylostoma caninum. Mm-hmm. But over the last five, ten years, we've been become increasingly aware that Ankylostoma caninum it predominates um, very significantly over the other one. Um, we've also learned, I think, over the last few years, both in eastern and western Canada, um, infections are not uncommon, even in mature dogs. Like mm-hmm. there's a recent study carried out dogs visiting off-leash dog parks in southern Ontario. Um, somewhere about between five and five and a half percent of all the dogs visiting that park. So these are healthy adult dogs yeah. were shedding eggs of Ankylostoma caninum in the feces. Interesting. And that was during summer, winter? When that, was that was carried out during the summer months. Summertime. We visited those parks multiple months throughout the summer. Yeah. And do you know if there any of those were on preventatives? Or? We don't know how many were on heartworm, pre- heartworm preventatives, yeah. but a majority were. Yeah. Um, and that alerted us to the fact that why is the prevalence of infection so high in such dogs? And it was suspicious that maybe the reason it's relatively common in that age group is potentially drug resistance. We don't have definitive evidence, but it's suspicious. Right. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, and that was just one dog park, or was that multiple that in the was, area? That was 10 dog parks yeah. around the Golden Horseshoe area. Right. We actually were in the parks sampling dogs because we were looking for a kind of Coccus multilocularis mm-hmm. in what we assumed were off-leash dogs, or the reality is a lot of the dogs weren't off-leash. But we just thought they are more likely to be consuming rodents, right. um, which you have to do as a dog if there's any chance of developing an adult Echinococcus multilocularis. Yeah. We never found that parasite mm-hmm. in over 470 dogs, but we were also looking for yeah. these other parasites yeah. in feces. Okay, interesting. So a bit more about their life cycle then. So hookworms, particularly Ankylostoma, we'll focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, it lives in the small intestine of dogs. Infections are a lot more common in young dogs than mature dogs. Uh, and burdens are much higher in tropical parts of the world, mm-hmm. just because I think dogs get infected with more parasites because they build up in the environment. Here, yeah. the winter typically kills them. Mm-hmm. Dogs shed hookworm eggs into the environment. Um, they look like just like gin eggs in ruminants. Uh, they then larvate, larvae hatches out, and typically dogs get infected either by ingesting those larvae all right, in the environment or the larvae burrow through the skin. Yeah. And then they migrate via the lungs and eventually get coughed up and swallowed and mature to adults in the small intestine. Mm-hmm. But it's there that the mucosal feeding takes place. Uh, and that's why when there's large burdens, you can have significant disease. Yeah, okay. Um, so would you say the, the fecal oral is more common than mammary transmission or transplacental? So in mature dogs, I think the answer is yes. Although in youngsters, obviously, transmammary is a yeah. significant source of infection when they're still suckling their mother. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So what about zoonotic concerns with this particular parasite? We've, we've always known that hookworms in general have zoonotic potential. I think the reality for Ankylostoma caninum and Uncinaria stenocephala, they can cause pinpoint skin lesions in people. So particularly if you put your foot over a larva in the environment, 
they usually don't cause the long snake-like serpiginous lesions or cutaneous larval migrants that we hear about in vet school. Mm. The hookworm that typically does that is a tropical hookworm, um, Ankylostoma brasiliense, and you'll find that in any tropical part of the world. Yeah. I'm talking to colleagues I know at the Tropical Disease Clinic uh, at one of the hospitals in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Almost all the people, they, essentially all the Canadians they see with skin lesions um, consistent with that parasite, people have travelled outside Ontario I- into a warm part of the world. Right. Uh, and so it's something that they have, people have acquired while on holiday, not um, here in Canada. There's no evidence we have that hookworm in our dogs. Right, okay. And is that just a, a, a border issue, or is it just the survivability of the parasite? Uh, I think it just it's just a more... It's more aggressive when it infects people. Yeah. I think the other ones, they do get in the skin, but we are able to stop them migrating. Mm. Okay. And how many calls like that do you, do you get? I get very few phone calls okay, about people enough. with cutaneous larval migraines. Okay. Like really, it's really rare yeah. that I ever hear about it. Okay. Well, that's, that's reassuring at least. So in terms of, of uh, feeling calls from veterinarians, um, what, what sort of common calls do you get about intestinal parasites? Hookworms are number one on the list of phone calls I get from vets, um, probably about intestinal parasites, other than potentially giardia infections. And the usual phone call, and I get at least one a month, is a vet that phones up and says, I've been treating a dog for a hookworm infection, and it's not responding to treatment. Mm -hmm. Probably 50% of those cases are dogs that have come into Canada recently. But in the last few years, I've also started hearing similar phone calls for dogs that have never left Canada. Right. And so the phone call is I've treated and it doesn't seem to be get, the usual treatments don't appear to be eliminating infection. Okay. And, and what, what tests are they doing then to look for that? Is it just I, a regular fecal? Or? They usually, so it, it, usually not a lot has been done. They might have looked under a microscope and seen eggs mm. and then done that after treatment. Um, my recommendation always is when the people think treatment is not working is to go back and do it. Um, but before you give the initial treatment to get an egg count, so that's the number of hookworm eggs per gram of feces, and you need to just make sure you talk to the lab mm-hmm. so that you, they do the appropriate test for right. you. Um, you want to know the number of eggs per gram of feces at the time of treatment, uh, and then after you've treated with the approved dosage, um, and essentially almost all the anthelmintics we have for treating intestinal parasites um, of dogs, most of them are approved with activity against Ankylostoma caninum, which mm-hmm. is the common hookworm we typically see here. Um, and after you've treated with the approved dosage, collect a fecal sample 14 days later. Okay. And again, ask the lab to give you the number of hookworm eggs per gram of feces. Right. If the drugs are fully effective, that egg count should drop by at least 95%. So, for instance, if it was 100 eggs per gram at the time of treatment, there should be less than 5 eggs per gram. It usually doesn't go to zero because no drug is 100% effective. Oh, okay. So I always ask people when they tell me I don't think treatment's working is to go back and get an egg count at the time of treatment 14 days later. Mm-hmm. If the egg count doesn't drop by more than 75%, so for instance, if it drops from 100 to 50 eggs per gram, so that's a 50% reduction, yeah. that's considered significant evidence of resistance to that drug. Mm. Okay. So just circling back, you said most of the anthelmintics don't completely clear the infection. So if you have that egg count of five, let's say, which is acceptable, 
that means that there's still viable hookworm in the intestine? It typically tells you there's low numbers of viable parasites present. It mm -hmm. may be because of a phenomenon that's called the larval leak phenomenon. That is, as dogs, particularly mature dogs, get infected with hookworms, in the way that we mentioned earlier on, mm -hmm. often the parasites typically don't complete their development, their migration, they go dormant, and then they reactivate later on in life. Uh, and that might be a reason for the very low numbers of parasites you're seeing. And in those dogs, the recommendation is to continue monthly preventative treatment. So if you're on a heartworm preventative, that's great yeah, because most are approved yeah. with activity against Ankylostoma caninum. And to continue that at least until animals go negative. Okay. Interesting. So that, that larval leak? So the larval leak phenomenon yeah. certainly occurs... Mm -hmm. But what appears to be a lot more common, but those infections, you know, even when there's larval leak, the parasite numbers in feces, the number of eggs per gram drops by at least 95%. Right. But the phone call I'm then having with vets is they've done all that and the egg count's not dropped mm. by anything like 95%. So, for instance, it's dropped 20%, no more than that. And so the obvious question is, what do you do next? Yeah. And that's a common phone call. And it's even more common further south in the U.S., um, and so, for instance, if it's not uncommon, people say they use Pyrantel, Strongit, yeah. all right, which is approved for ankylostoma, and it's not worked. That's a common phone call. Mm -hmm. If you've got evidence you've got resistance, so you've gone through the procedure we just mentioned, then the, the, then the recommendation is change the drug class. Okay. And you really only have two other drug classes um, to use as an anthelmintic in dogs. Mm -hmm. Either the benzimidazole, so for instance yeah. that's fenbendazole, yeah. sold under the name potentially Safeguard or Panicure, yeah. or the other drug class are the macrocyclic lactones that we mm -hmm. typically use for heartworm prevention. Yeah. So if pyrantel is not working and you've got evidence that's due to resistance, then the recommendation is change to one of the other two drug classes. Usually people would then switch to fenbendazole. Yeah. Uh, and again, get the egg count on the day of treatment and 14 days later. Use fenbendazole in the approved manner, which is 50 mg per kg daily for three days in a row. Mm -hmm. All right, And again, do the fecal egg count 14 days later. 14 days after the first fecal? After, the first, after, after the first treatment. After yeah. the first treatment. Okay. And it's not uncommon. Vets are getting back to me and saying... That's not working either. Right. Again, make sure you've confirmed it by yeah. doing egg counts before and after treatment. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, what are you left with? Well, the only other drug class that's approved in Canada are the, most of the macrocyclic lactones. Yeah. Um, just be careful. Not all the macrocyclic lactones are approved with activity against um, hookworms. So, for instance, HeartGuard Plus, mm -hmm. the macrocyclic lactone in that is ivermectin. But the dosage in HeartGuard Plus is so low um, that the only activity ivermectin has is heartworm prevention. The plus right. is the pyrantel they added. Yeah, okay. So that it doesn't make sense to use that because the pyrantel in that is for hookworms. So any essentially any of the other macrocyclic lactones. Right. Okay. And it's not uncommon. The vets are getting back to me and saying that's not working either. Interesting. Some, some with some people it is. Yeah. Some people it's not. Okay. And and do you have a sense then of these dogs that have come in from other countries or are they local? I know you said that maybe 50% have, have been imported, but... I think originally the dogs we were seeing were dogs principally coming in from the southeastern US. Mm -hmm. All the evidence is that this resistance actually arose in greyhound facilities in Florida. Yeah. Um, 
And historically, uh, there was a lot of anthelmintic treatment going on in these greyhounds, which typically are raised in sa- and raised and raced in sand environments, which yeah. is an ideal environment for hookworms. Yeah. We think the resistance originally started there, and then when the Americans um, voted for a new president in 2016, at the same time they voted for Trump or someone else, they actually also voted in Florida to ban greyhound racing. Mm -hmm. And that's put on the market essentially a large number of greyhounds, and we think that's why the resistance is now all over the US, and very likely why originally it came into Canada in dogs coming up from the US. Yeah. Initially, I was only hearing about it in greyhounds, but I'm hearing about it in, in lots of different Brand dog breeds. breeds now. Right. So is there any merit then if we have these resistance to single, you know, anthelmintic treatments of combining or is that? So that's a good question. Like, what do you do when you've got resistance to pyrantel, fenbendazole and a macrocyclic lactone? Yeah. So for instance, um, moxidectin. Mm-hmm. All right. The recommendation at that point is to combine all three yeah. and do that next. Okay. All right. Um, so on the first day, you give all of the drugs. Mm-hmm. All right. And then day two and three, you give the second and third dose of fenbendazole. Yeah, and again, do a fecal two weeks after that. Right. Some animals, that's enough. It eliminates the infection. Some animals, it doesn't. Mm. But the recommendation is don't do the three drug classes together until you know the other three and not working individually. Individually, the three right. together should be a last resort. Okay. And what what what's the rationale for that then? Well, bec- because we want the triple combination drug class therapy to remain efficacious yeah. for as long as possible. Okay. All right. And and often single classes by themselves do work. Yeah. Um, and we want to make sure they're used as long as possible before mm-hmm. you have triple combination. Okay. Because after that, and there certainly are some vets phoning me up and saying the triple combination is not working. Interesting. At that point, um, your one option, well, your one option in Canada, and it's a very fortunate thing about being in Canada, and that with an emergency drug release, you, we're allowed to use Profenda for dogs. You may be aware we have a product in cats in Canada yes. called Profenda for cats. Yeah. Uh, it's a topical that contains praziquantel for tapeworms and a drug called emodepsite yeah. that's in there primarily for roundworms and hookworms. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different drug class. Okay. We are not supposed to use the cat topical product in <laughs> dogs right, because of toxicity issues. Okay. But with an EDR, you can access Profenda for dogs that's an oral product available in Europe. Oh, um, and if people want to access it, feel free to drop me an email um, because I know the person um, in Canada that has it. Yeah, uh, it's the company that manufactures in it. Yeah, uh, and typically you can get it within a week maximum. Oh, uh, and the experience of essentially everyone I know that has used it, typically one treatment is enough to eliminate the infection, which has not responded to the other three drug classes even right. when combined. Okay, so you mentioned. Um the Profenda as a emergency drug release. I was just going to lead into, are, are you familiar, are you aware of any other research into other anthelmintics to help prevent, I guess, or combat this resistance? So that's a really good question. What else is there? Yeah. I mean, there are, there are a number of researchers looking at ex- other experimental drugs, but there's nothing I've seen that's likely to come on the market in the near future. Um, so... 
it's one of the reasons we don't really want emidepside for dogs to become used widely. Because mm-hmm. there is a little bit of evidence from one kennel facility in the US that decided to, because the Americans are not allowed to access Profenda for dogs. Okay. Um, because they don't have the same EDR process that we yeah. do. So one person used a lot of the cat product mm. um, given orally to dogs. Right. And it's pretty clear evidence within about a year in that kennel facility, they induced resistance to amidepside. Really? So I think it's it needs to be a, a product of last resort here. Yeah. Um, because at the moment, we don't have anything else. I'm cautiously optimistic in the next five to ten years, there may be other drugs mm-hmm. in different drug classes that should work. But we'd have to wait and see. Yeah, okay. And you say kennel is in a, a, a boarding facility, as in a, a breeding facility, or I'm not exactly sure the what the yeah. kennel facility was, what its primary function was, right. but it it used a lot of the cat yeah, product the cat um, over over a, a number of months, and within I think about a year, there was pretty clear yeah. evidence they'd induced resistance. Interesting. So apart from the the typical anthelmintics, what about environmental you know prevention cleaning do we need to do do we do we need to be concerned about that with the multi-anthelmintic drug resistant uh parasites so that's a very good question what are there any environmental concerns i mean the big concern is contaminating the environment with drug resistant parasites mm-hmm. and and the reason that's a very relevant issue there's one or two people i know who've used the arguments typically hookworm infections in mature dogs even when they're drug resistant, don't cause any disease. Mm. And that's just typically here because of our low burdens, Yeah, because the winter eliminates the environmental challenge. Yes. And the argument they put forward is, since it's not causing any disease, why not just leave the infections alone? Eventually the immune system will clear the infection. Right. But the, to counter that, you have to recognize those dogs are shedding drug-resistant eggs into the environment. Mm-hmm. And that's almost certainly why we think we saw more than 5% of mature dogs visiting off-leash dog parks on heartworm, most on heartworm preventives, had hookworm infections. Yeah. And so that's why we think it's likely those of infections have established here. Mm. Obviously, the, for instance, depending on the type of park environment where dogs are soiling the most, all right, you can argue in certain types of parks, the amount of hookworm contamination could be significantly other, particularly if people aren't picking up feces promptly. Yeah. And I was just going to say, so what advice, most of our listeners tend to be veterinarians, veterinary power professionals, but we do have, you know, the odd non-professional. What advice would you give the average owner taking their pet to an off-leash dog park then? Well, my advice was, is always, if your dog's, if you know your dog's pooped, pick up the feces promptly, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise that could be a source of infection from other dogs uh, yeah. a few days after the feces was produced. Yeah. And then obviously staying on a good anthelmintic program. Yeah, and if there's any yeah. concerns about a hookworm infection, make sure that folks are working with their vets to ensure the infections have been eliminated. Mm-hmm. And then if you've got resistance, you need to work progressively through other drug classes yeah. to make sure you've got rid of the infection. Yeah. If you've got a dog with a, you know, if you know you've got an infection um, that's drug resistant, particularly to three drug classes, I mean, the recommendation would be keep out of dog parks yeah. until that infection's been eliminated from that dog okay and and then to, to listeners who might not have come across this before but if they do in the future is this something that we need or should be reporting to someone like you or it's not reportable but just just in terms it, of the veterinary profession so itself. that's actually a really good 
question, Omar, because I've heard a number of different people say, should this be reported so that we have yeah. some idea of how common or uncommon mm -hmm. these infections are? Because the only ones I hear about at the moment are when people phone up. Yeah. How common are they in practice? I don't know. Um, but I think that as something as a profession we should start talking about. I do know certainly the folks in Ant so the folks at Antec are now offering as part of an intestinal PCR panel mm -hmm. um, a genetic test for anthelmintic resistance in hookworms. That's just oh, okay. resistance to benzimidazoles. Right. So they are collecting information and they're starting to share that. Like of all the dogs, they look at hookworm infections. How many are they seeing? Um, fenbendazole resistance in. Yeah. The other person in Canada that started a large national study is Dr. John Gilliard at the University of Calgary. Um, okay. And he and I and folks in Antec are trying to do a national study mm. to try and get pretty concrete evidence on how common resistance is in different in dogs in different parts of the country. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and how is that coming? It's just in the development just, stages. Yeah. They're trying to get hold of a large number of samples, so it won't be a year or two before they have um, pretty definitive evidence how common infections are. W there are concerns if you look because of what you, we've been seeing in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and that is right across the U.S., uh, right across all the states. If you look at hookworm infections in dogs, typically wherever you are in the U.S., between 20 and 30 percent of those infections are resistant to at least one drug class. Wow. So it's not it's not it was very surprising that even though it's originated, we think, in Florida, yeah. it's very quickly spread, spread all over the entire country. So mm. it wouldn't be surprising if it's pretty common here. I think a lot of us don't appreciate how common it is because I think a lot of people aren't doing fecals after we use an anthelmintic. Yeah. Uh, but with hookworms, I think you can no longer assume that whatever you're treating with, that it's necessarily working. And I think if we started doing more fecals pre and particularly following treatment, mm -hmm. we might have a clearer idea of how common these refractory infections are. Okay. Right. That's interesting. And, and I guess if, if any of our listeners are... Uh, have a particular case so that they're concerned about that they can always reach out to you for some more advice yeah please phone up i know dr yeah. weiss is here at ovc is also handling similar calls mm -hmm. i think the more information we get about how common these infections are and where they're occurring yeah um, is important the other issue is that i think a number of people phone up and it's quite clear after we work with the vets that in fact the infections weren't resistant uh, it may have been an issue with inadequate dosing mm. um, or a number of other things which right. is just as helpful yeah. to confirm that something's working or yes. is not and yeah, you need to exactly. move on to something else. Right. Okay. That, that's great information. Thank you so much, Andrew. So I'd like to thank you, Andrew, for joining us again. Uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you as always. Uh, so much knowledge and, and you're so great at teaching. Um, you need to come back and visit us again. I think we have a few other topics that we want to delve into at some point. Thanks, Omar. Happy to help out. I'd like to thank our listeners as well uh, for tuning in to the session today. Uh, if you have any questions or comments about the program, you can email us at vetsessions at hotmail.com. You can also follow us at vetsessions on Instagram. Take care, everyone.